Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Coaches Road podcast. Today, we are joined by Nick Winkelman. For some of you who has been listening right now, this might be a more familiar name. Nick Winkelman has been written the book, The Language of Coaching. And this book has gained a lot of attention among coaches, among various sports. And we definitely appreciate the opportunity a lot that we had the chance to speak to him about his book and about overall his work. And I need to say, I'm saying it in the conversation as well a few times, but I have read the book and it provides definitely with plenty of valuable information of how to communicate with your athletes and how to charge your language emotionally. But there are certain principles to understand um, to do so. So that's why it was really great that we had the opportunity to speak to Nick also about how he actually teaches these things. And um, I need to say that all the time when we speak to people um, from to whom or where we have been reading already things, um, if I read these things, then um, it's a little bit different than when I speak to the person, because if the person who has been writing it explains it to me, it gives me a little bit deeper understanding and it enhances my learning overall. So I think this is very valuable if you have the opportunity to first read something and then to speak about it so this was definitely a great conversation about we touched on so many different things i think we spoke a little bit about attention then we spoke about um, memory we we spoke about the coaching communication loop which is an excellent tool in my mind so it was a wonderful conversation about the work he has been doing and about his book yeah yeah a lot of fun and a really great conversation and, and he models the stuff that he does in the book and the conversation itself. So it's kind of interesting to hear that, you know, he repeats himself and, and he mentions halfway through the conversation that he, he's doing that on purpose and, and modeling something out of the book. So it's definitely a great read. Go check it out. Uh, the language of coaching.com. Uh, but it's, it's a fantastic read, really practical and just some really great insights on, on actually the impact that our language has and how we can utilize that impact to the better, help our athletes learn and develop and, and, and really maximize their potential with their with their movement. So really interesting stuff. Uh, you, you hit the highlights on it for sure today, talking about attention, memory, the coaching communication loop. And he has some some great quotes from the episode and, and just overall really, really fun guy to talk to. Uh, he's got a lot of energy, a lot of passion, and and someone who kind of had to go through the journey of learning how to utilize the power of his of his language and and he gets to the the words that work in his words and it's uh yeah it's really interesting so without further ado let's kick it over to author nick winkle All right. So now we'd like to welcome on Nick Winkleman, author of The Language of Coaching, The Art and Science of Teaching Movement. Um, Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. How's everything going in Ireland? Yeah, Derek, Rick, uh, very happy to be here. Ireland's great. We are, are slowly but surely opening up as we enter into this post-COVID world. It's more, more, more sunshine as we enter into the summer. So I'm a very happy camper here with my family. Yeah, that's great. We're 
getting some more sun here as well and, and it's nice to to be able to stay up until 10 30 and it's still being daylight outside so um well we're excited to to have you on to talk to you about your book and about queuing and feedback but before we jump into that would you just kind of give our listeners a, a little bit about your background and, and kind of how you got started in the field and and where you are now and what you're doing now in ireland yeah certainly derek so by by background, I've been a, a strength and conditioning coach or uh, athletic performance coach, whatever your preferred title is for coming up on 17 years now. And that, that journey, as you can hear with my accent, had me start in the United States. And now I've made my way to, to Ireland. And so when I was stateside, I worked for a company called Exos, which is a, a well, now a, a multinational private high-performance entity catering to corporate wellness, elite military, professional athletes, down to, to general population. And so the 10 years I was there, I primarily focused on working with athletes uh, preparing to go into the NFL and who are already playing within the NFL from an American football perspective. I also did quite a bit with, with the elite military. And so from a strength coach perspective, that was my canvas, if you will, for, for developing my craft, my art. At the same time, though, I was always, as I know many of your listeners are, involved in coach education. So in addition to being a strength and conditioning coach, I was helping share our methodology to other aspiring trainers, strength conditioning coaches, and the like. Uh, inevitably, after you've worked for a place for, for 10 years, you get to the point where you want to start to enter into to new challenges, as well as finding a place where you can add value to it. So an opportunity to join Irish Rugby presented itself in 2016. And so I've now been here for the last five years as the head of athletic performance and science. And that's really just a fancy title that means I get to work with a lot of really cool people on making our athletes thrive on the field in, in terms of what our rugby coaches ask of them. And that allows me to work across both men's and women's national teams, both 15s and sevens, as well as our four professional our four professional teams that are, if you would, the, the feeder system into the national team as well. And so it's a real unique role. There, there's nothing like it stateside. And so I find myself almost looking back, it's almost like a collegiate role and that I get to work across a lot of different teams. And so within that, I spend about 70% of my time, as I say, in the crow's nest, trying to look towards the future, making sure we're, we're doing right by our players, our people, our, our process and the physical places that we work. But, but I still get to have boots on the ground doing a lot of, of speed development work with our sevens team that is currently getting uh, prepared for a repercharge uh, going into an Olympic qualifier. So that's that's kind of the canned background of, of 17 years. And within that, obviously we can get into my uh, endless interest and curiosity into the intersection between what a coach says from a communication perspective and how that influences the way their athlete thinks and applies that information in the pursuit of, of learning movement and becoming an elite performer. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly the reason why we 
wanted to get you on the show and I had the opportunity to read the book, The Language of Coaching. Um, last, I think I read it in December and I need to say there have been a lot of valuable information. I have been reading one article previously about speed queuing, which was also written by you, um, about external queuing and internal queuing. And I think it has changed a little bit my perspective on how I think on giving feedback and actually really queuing the athlete. But um, before we dive into more that material, um, you describe it a little bit in the book and you have been just mentioning as well, um, already when you have been working previously, you always wanted to invest in the future. And I think this book is basically in a sum of your experience from the last 10, 15 years, you have been involved in strength and conditioning in that area. And um, my question for you is that, how, how did you come up with the idea of writing the book and why did you do it in the end? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Rick. It's a great question. And I appreciate your, your kind words and taking the time to, to read it. Um, for me, the, th this might sound a little bit cliche, but I wrote the book because no one else had written it. <laughs> and it was the book that I wished I had had when I was an up-and-coming S&C coach. I, I think it captures, you know, at least as a first attempt, knowing that there's not too many books on the topic contextualized to teaching movement. It was the first attempt at filling in what I still believe is a massive gap in what I refer to as the movement profession. And so when I say the movement profession, I don't strictly mean fitness or strength and conditioning. I know the, a lot of the audience might be, you know, hockey coaches or working other sports. So if you teach movement for a living, whatever level which you do that, that's what that's that that's the motivation, that's the impact, that's the endpoint the book is, is targeting. And so for me, my first collision with communication being something really important was when I was in college. And so briefly, I was working as an, as an understudy, as an intern, if you will, under another personal trainer. And I remember watching him coach, and I was just mesmerized by the impact he would have on individuals. His sessions were almost you know, one part entertainment as they were training and education. He would captivate his clients. And as I looked at his programming, I realized that what he did in terms of reps and sets and exercises wasn't a whole lot different to anybody else. But what was chiefly different was how he coached them, how he cued, how he provided feedback. And so it was that moment, you know, I couldn't have been more than 19 or 20 at the time, where I just put a little flag that this idea around communication being important was, was something I needed to look into. And then fast forward, it must have been six, seven years later, I'm now running the, the Exos NFL Combine Development Program. And so I have 30 some athletes, many of which are going to be first round draft picks, future millionaires that will play, you know, on, on Sunday night and, and Monday night, in the US for, for big dollars and be, you know, be the motivation for so many aspiring young up and coming football players themselves. So I worked with these high level individuals and I had this moment of realization that 
even though by all accounts, I was a very good strength conditioning coach. I had a good reputation. I couldn't have earned the role I was in had, had I not. I realized a massive deficit in myself and that I was spending far more time, as I like to say, behind my eyes versus in front of my eyes. And, and to put that another way, I was focusing in my head on delivering the program as a one-way street, like a broadcaster versus actually focusing on the person, being present in the moment, observing the impact of my communication on the, the learning and performance of the athletes in front of me. And so once, so to speak, I kind of woke up and this really hit me probably around somewhere between 2007 and 2009, when I really woke up, I realized that I wasn't paying attention to the impact of my language, the impact of my coaching and communication in any precise, purposeful way on the performance in the moment, but the learning long-term. I was simply happy that what I was saying made sense to me. I wasn't driven by the fact that it needed to make sense to them. And so once I started to look at eye contact, body language, and pay close attention to whether or not my words were making a difference in the moment across training sessions, once I leaned into that reality as a source of feedback, I quickly started to make changes to how much I said, what I said, and when I said it. I still was looking for a system. I was looking for a systematic way to upgrade what I said, how I said it, and when I said it. And that brought me, again, to use the word, into, into contact with motor learning the science of teaching and learning how to move. And it was a passion project over 10 years where I studied many, many different works, but notably the work of Dr. Gabrielle Wolf, who has really been champion, the, the preeminent researcher examining the impact of coaching language on athlete focus and the impact in athlete's focus which everyone logically can relate to into how they learn to move. And so we're, we're going to unpack this certainly, but fast forward in 2016, had finished a PhD on, on the topic, looking at the impact of coaching language on sprint performance, and the book still had not been written. Certainly Gabrielle Wolf had written her book, Attention and Motor Skill Learning, which I cannot recommend highly enough, but that, that was a research narrative. It wouldn't be accessible to the everyday volunteer coach or strength coach or personal trainer. And so I was driven to write that book, the book that really could stand the, set, the test of time to be the super training, uh, if you will, of coaching communication. And so in 2020, the language of coaching was, was born after over a decade of thinking and four years of writing. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's a really powerful book in that sense. Like it's it's so practical and it's easy to use that information and, and everything like that. And it, it gets you thinking about exactly what you were talking about. How how do I talk to my athletes? How are they understanding what I'm saying? And everything like that. And you know, I, I wanna get to the 
the interaction between the communication bef and the, the motor skill learning. And, but I, I want to start with something that you talk about early on in your book, which is this idea of attention, right? And how do we, how do we capture our athletes attention and keep our athletes attention? Because you, you mentioned in the book that it's, if you're not able to do that, then, you know, whatever you say, if they're not paying attention, it's not going to have an impact. So can you talk briefly about how do we, um, capture, keep, and kind of direct our athletes' attention? Yes, certainly, certainly. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. Um, so, so number one is, in, and, and I truly believe this, and I've yet to run into someone who disagrees. You know, we like to say we are what we eat. Well, by, by equal measure, we are and become what we pay attention to. And so the, the phrase I use in the book and the one that's quoted most often is attention is the currency of learning. You, you only learn from the things you pay attention to, right? We, we don't live in the matrix, at least we don't think we do, at least not yet. And so you don't magically wake up with Kung Fu skills if you haven't been training for Kung Fu, you know, for, for X amount of decades. You don't suddenly wake up and be able to play one at one of, uh, Beethoven's classics, having never put your fingers on the keys of a piano. And so again, I say it, you only learn from the things you pay attention to. Uh, but what's interesting is you only pay attention to things that either stand out, are important, notable for your survival, or are interesting to you. Now, assuming that we do not have any apex predators running around your training sessions on or off the ice in the case of this listener group, then what we're really talking about is people are going to pay, pay attention to things that are interesting, things that are valuable, things that are important. So if attention is the currency of learning, motivation is what battery powers attention. And even if we just pause there, we can ask ourselves as coaches, how am, I, how am I using language? How am I setting up environments that connect motivationally relevant stuff to my athletes in terms of what I'd like them to learn, right? So being able to connect motivation and attention to how we speak and how we cultivate an environment, literally a physical training environment down to the drills, activities, order of activities that you choose, this is the canvas that we as coaches are interacting with. And so the, the three-step process, Derek, that you cite from the book is, yes, we have to capture, keep, and direct attention. Now, we could talk about this endlessly, these three steps, but let's ultimately just give some high-level recommendations. When we talk about capturing attention, there are a number of things that are important. One is we've got to keep the message very, very simple. Uh, there, there's no possible way that even listening to a podcast, you're going to re remember everything that has been said. Equally, your athletes cannot possibly remember everything that you said during a practice or a training session. So it is our job to make certain things stand out. Make the most important thing the most important thing 
when it comes to your training sessions. And so one way you do that is what I talk about in the book is making sure that when you start a session, you have a WWH. What are we doing today? Why are we doing it? And how are we going to do it? Think of this as priming attention. We are priming them such that their brain has a, an affinity, an attraction to the most important things that you want them to get out of that session. And so a lot of my work, as, as I said earlier, is in rugby, but specifically speed development. And so what's a WWH before a speed development session? Well, I have my team of 15 players in front of me. What are we going to do today? Well, today we are going to work on our short speed. We are going to see how quickly we can cover 10 meters. I might say, Derek, why is sprinting over 10 meters so important defensively? Ah, well, coach, most of our defensive maneuvers are going to have us within 10 meters of the opponent. And so our ability to close that gap quickly will increase the odds of a defensive stand. Brilliant. Then I might say, Rick, though, why is that 10-meter speed so important on the attacking offensive side of the ball? Well, oftentimes, Coach, we're only going to have a few seconds to see a hole and break through it. And if we can cover that 10 meters, we're either going to get positive gain line, a term we use for progress in rugby, but equally, I might increase the odds of getting more runway to run out and score a try. Fantastic. So that's what we're going to do. But in involving my players, what have I also done? They have given me the why. They've told me why that sprinting is important. And hidden within there, if my players know that at the beginning of a session, I'm going to ask questions, and I'm not going to ask them just BS, yes or no questions. I'm going to ask them to get involved. Guess what? Derek, Rick, and everybody else on the team is going to be paying attention. No one wants to get called out, not prepared to authentically answer the question in front of their peers and teammates. And so inevitably then that's the WW, the H. How are we gonna do that? Team, today we have three parts. We have our prep, we have our wall drills, and then I'm gonna give you four 10 meter sprints. On those 10 meter sprints, you know we have been working on dot, 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 insert focus here insert cue here, insert mentality here, right? Whatever it is, it could be about effort. It could be about a specific technical body position. If it was in team sports, it could be about some tactics we're looking to get across. But you see what we've done there. We've taken the time to prime the mind to what's most important. We've already captured, and I'd argue we've kept attention just for that little three to five minute, not even five, three minute riff could be one minute riff at the beginning of a session. And so now as that session unfolds, I'm referencing back to that opener and I'm referencing back to those cues globally that I'm using across my squad because it is a team that I'm working with. But then also within that, during selective breaks, I could go over hand on the shoulder of a Derek Derek, on this next repetition, what do you think we can focus on to achieve X? Or, hey, here's two different cues. Which one would you prefer to focus on? So on and so forth. And so what I'm trying to model here, and I'm going to pause because we, we could give a lot more examples, is it's specific strategies 
used to grab attention, used to make the most important thing the most important thing. And then it is you as the coach being precise, present, and persistent in keeping that message on message throughout the session. Because if I model the most important thing, my athletes are more likely to mirror it. It goes back to the original point. Attention is a limited capacity resource. How much we can remember moment to moment is a limited capacity resource. So to make the most important thing the most important thing, we have to work to turn down the noise. And oftentimes as coaches, we are the number one guilty party of the noise because we ask and provide way too much information for what our athletes moment to moment can handle. And ultimately when that happens, they tune off, right? And you've lost their attention. And the second you've lost their attention, learning stops. That makes so much sense what you said to me, because if you think about athlete-centered coaching, we spoke to, for example, Erka Westerlund, who has been the founder of our program and has been involved for a very long time in ice hockey and is like basically a coaching icon here in Finland. And what he mentioned about that coaching approach that earlier coaching was basically a monologue and meanwhile coaching is a dialogue. And I think this WWH approach reflects on that because you have basically an interaction with your athletes. You do not just tell them what they're going to do now. And basically with this approach, you have the dialogue and you can keep their attention. So I think this is, um, for me, for, from, from a learning perspective, this is definitely a huge point. And I need to say that one of my most favorite parts of the book was when I have been writing about that entire memory process. And after that, I also read the, read a little bit about this more and I think it's such so essential that we discuss it and I'm very thankful to you that you brought it up in your book as well because it's so crucial in really helping our athletes that what you have been mentioning also now here today that what we say makes sense and sticks with them so could you please walk us through the memory process from working memory to long-term memory and how do we actually make memory sticks stick in our in the brain of our athletes yeah certainly certainly so you know i think when we when we talk about memory when we talk about memory there there's still in the research arguments around how memory shows up or or represents itself in minds of human beings. And, and I make that quite, I uh, try to at least make that quite clear in the book. But for pragmatics, for pragmatics, we have this short-term memory, which oftentimes is referred to as working memory, because it's the memory that you are working with. It's the memory that is holding, so to speak, new information and aggregating it with old information, stored information, to allow you to, to make sense of newness, to integrate new information, to categorize new information, right? So working memory is almost the, it, it's the workplace of the mind. It's the workshop of the mind. It's where we figure out what do we want to stay and what do we want to go. But like any physical workshop, like any physical room, it is 
limited in how big it is, right? There's only so many pieces of furniture, machinery, and people I can put in that mental workplace. And so that's why we typically talk about short-term working memory being a limited capacity resource. But if something is important, if something is integrated with other concepts, or something's paid attention to long enough, meaning it spent enough time in our mental workshop, then uh, inevitably it earns right what appears to be the, this infinite, uh, this this infinite capacity to remember. Think of it like a warehouse. We have a warehouse that is connected by way of a door <laughs> to this workshop that seems to be infinite its capacity to store information. But so to speak, it needs to be important enough, uh, valued enough, or some other value proposition to get there. And so as, as a coach, what we are trying to do is put the right amount of the right information. I want to say that again, the right amount of the right information into that mental workshop, into that working memory, into the mind of the athlete moment to moment so that the athlete can be very clear that what they're focused on matters, can integrate what they're focusing on with the body of work that's already stored in memory. Let's say in this case, it's physical movement skills, such that what we are doing is memorable. Now, I want to say a few more things about working memory but let's talk about how memory shows up in training. When we say that something has been learned, when we say that something has been learned, that, that means the athlete can express the change without a requirement for reminder, without the requirement for another coaching cue prompt or feedback. And so let me say it again. When something has been learned, the athlete owns it, the athlete integrates it, and they can express it whether or not a coach is there to observe or say anything, right? So if, if an athlete requires a constant reminder to express skill in a certain way, if they require constant feedback to express skill in a certain way, then they have yet to learn it. There's the potential for learning still there, but think of it as the information is still in the workshop of the mind. I, I'm being crude and I'm taking liberties that neuroscientists would slap my hand for, but I think it will make sense pragmatically for the listener that if it, if it requires a reminder, it's still in the workshop. It hasn't made its way into the warehouse storage yet. And so by, by, by this train of thought, long-term memory and learning are somewhat synonymous in that if I can express something without prompt or reminder, it's in the warehouse. It's part of me. It's, it's ingrained. And so as coaches, we are trying to interact with short-term memory, working memory, to get something to make its way to long-term memory. John Wooden once said, I have not taught until they have learned. And what that does is it points the spotlight back on us as a coach to challenge us that the, the number one source of feedback 
that we as a coach should be paying attention to is to whether or not the athlete OTCs owns the change. OTC, own the change. That's, that's what it is about. And so if we go back to working memory, this was the question, Rick, that you asked. How do we increase the odds that something is going to be remembered? Well, number one, brevity needs to be our best friend. We want to say the most with the least. I still haven't learned how to do that on podcasts yet, but it's a work in progress. So brevity is our best friend. When you watch coach, I try to be very brief with the information I offer to the athlete's mind. Okay. Now, once I go into brevity, then it's a matter of, well, how do I present the athlete with ideas that are, are interesting, that are relevant, that are valuable, that are memorable? Well, this is where we can start talking about the formulation of external cues, the use of analogy. But before we do that, let's do a thought experiment to illustrate how you make something memorable. I want everyone who's listening, I know a lot of people work in ice hockey, so you can imagine someone's on ice doing a, a, a sprint, a speed type test, or you can imagine you're doing dry land training and you're on a track, okay? And just imagine that, that we have all of you who are listening, you're gonna do a 10 meter sprint, okay? As I talked about earlier, you're gonna sprint 10 meters as fast as you can. And you're coming out of either a two point or a three point stance you know, with or without blocks, you choose. And so imagine now I offered you up the following cues. These are coaching cues that you focus on while you move, like an address in a GPS to help you move faster. Okay, here's cue number one. Right? Focus on rapidly extending your hips as you sprint. Focus on rapidly extending your hips. Then focus on rapidly driving your legs back. Focus on rapidly driving your legs back, okay? Cue number three, focus on pushing the ground away. Focus on pushing the ground away. And then cue number four, imagine a venomous snake is two feet behind you about to bite your ankle. A venomous snake is two feet behind you about to bite your ankle. Beat the bite. Beat the bite. Now, right there, there's four cues. People have probably already forgot the first one. There's a bit of a peak end rule that I'm playing to, but I guarantee if we, we polled the audience at the end of your podcast, hey, what, what were those four cues that Nick gave about halfway through to sprint better? I would imagine that the venomous snake beat the bite would be the number one cue they all remember. And so what this shows us is the more emotional language is, and the more that emotion is born out of story. And for me, story is something that makes it easy to see a visual. Story is something that makes it easy to see a visual. These things tend to stick better in the mind. We know that when people read, and they've, they've done this in studies, the more emotionally laden, meaning the more emotions portrayed in the text, the more likely they are to remember those passages. 
And so I'm not saying that we have to get up and be storytellers, although I think the best coaches are. They know how to use quick uses of phrase, analogy, metaphor, and short story to put simple, accessible, memorable ideas that make the important thing the important thing through a motivationally relevant and interesting narrative. That's what great coaches do. And that's how you get from workshop to warehouse. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. And that's something we we talk about a little bit on our show as well is this, this ability to tell stories and, and inspire your athletes and, and connect with them on that kind of emotional level as you were just describing it. And you mentioned earlier, you were seeking this kind of systematic way to monitor what you're saying to the athletes, right? And then how you're saying it and everything like that. And if I'm if I'm not mistaken here, that's what you kind of describe as the the coaching loop inside of the inside of the book. And can you just describe that loop and how we can use it and, and how we can apply the principles of that loop into our into our coaching? Certainly, certainly. So um, the coach communication loop, the CCL coaching communication loop. Um, and even as I'm talking, I want people to realize that when I repeat myself, I do that on purpose. So I'm actually modeling some of the things that we've talked about. And, and just, I don't want that to be lost on anyone. And I do that when I coach as well. It all just lends itself back to Rick, some of the questions you asked. So I just thought that would be fun to, to go meta here, step out of the conversation and talk about how we're having the conversation, because ultimately that's where this shows up and the difference we can make. And so the coaching communication loop, you know, Rick is, is a roadmap to help coaches organize what they say and when they say it so that they can make the important thing, the important thing. It, it really is that simple. It's not a bunch of rules per se, it's guidelines to help get the most out of language. What I find is you don't become a great coach by, by chance alone, right? There are things that you are systematically doing. What I'm trying to do with the coach communication loop is, is help you get the most out of the good that is already there when it comes to the language you use when you're coaching. And so the, the coach communication loop is five, you can call them steps. You can call them stages, you can call them components, but there is an order of operations. And I use the word loop because literally we're talking about the language you use before, during, and after an exercise, a movement, a skill, an activity, or drill, whatever phrase you want to use. And so these strategies loop around the athlete and loop around what they are moving, uh, what they are learning. And so it helps you put the right information in the right place at the right time. And so I'll, I'll go through all five. But within this, what's important to know is when you use all five steps, I call that the long loop. And the long loop principally is used when you're teaching something for the first time or you're trying to remind the group of something. But the short loop, which is just the, the last three steps, that is what we will use when we are teaching something which the athlete is already familiar, okay? And so what this does is it means this strategy, this system to use your word, Rick, is very adaptable to the individuals you're working with. And so imagine you're on the ice 
you are teaching a, a skill, think of skill-based here, not, not a tactical scenario or a play, but you're teaching a skill. Step one is you describe it. And the goal of describing a skill is to do three things. One, to provide any technical information about the skill that creates common language between you and your athletes. Meaning if you wanna be able to talk about what the stick should be doing or what the trunk should be doing or what the skate should be doing, right? That's what I mean by technical language. You're talking about the parts of the skill. And usually we do that so that we have a common language with the person in front of us. The second thing we might talk about is, is safety for a lot of the stuff we do in the gym, for example, or just general considerations, right? Hey, when you're doing this, your rules, let's say, stay within the lines or make sure you're focusing on what the defender is doing as they're breaking inward, things of that nature. And then the third piece is what I call confidence raising, or the more formal term would be self-efficacy raising. And what we're trying to tell the athletes and coaches do this naturally, hey, this skill is a lot like that other thing we've taught you before. Or this skill, you actually do it all the time in the game. Or this skill is kind of like this other sport movement maybe you've done when you're a kid growing up. Why do we do that? We do that so it's less intimidating. We do that so that the person believes in themselves that they're capable of this. And so there's this balance of creating common language, technical language. Hey, here's the components of the movement. So when I'm teaching a sprint, it might be, hey, I want good extension out your back leg, good flexion out the front leg, and a nice long spine. That might be some of the technical information. And so that's the description. Now, that might take 15 seconds. It might take a minute. It depends on the, the complexity of what you're teaching. And so there's no rules there. After you describe it, you demonstrate it. Now, the demonstration is just simply you're trying to bring a visual representation to the semantic, the verbal representation you just gave them. Now, in, in teaching or pedagogy or motor learning, whatever skill acquisition, whatever phrase you prefer, we refer to this as dual, as in two, dual coding that the information we're giving the athlete is coded verbally and visually, increasing the odds, right? Drum roll, please, that it goes from that working memory, that workshop to warehouse. It's actually recalled. But, and this is a big but, there's quite a bit there for a person learning a movement for the first time. They've watched a whole demonstration, heard some technical jargon. We've all been on the receiving end of a coach, right? Uh, Rick, I love how you said it, giving a monologue about all the different things you need to think about, right? Remember to breathe, push, body position, legs, arms, skate, stick. And it just becomes overwhelming. And what does the athlete say? In their mind, they're saying this if they don't say it out loud. So what do you want me to do? And so I think that the art in the science is brevity in your descriptions, giving them need to know, need to know information, really good demonstration so that we can tap into that visual we know we can easily mirror, like Simon says, we can easily mirror what we see. Step number three, and this is really the heartbeat of the book, is the cue. So the cue is that one point. It's that important thing that you want to be the most important thing. 
And it's where you take that deep breath and say, now to do that, right? Now to physically do what I just described and demonstrated, here's what I want you to focus on. Here's the address in the GPS. Here's the one thing that you are trying to think about to increase the odds that you will perform this skill better and learn and retain that performance in the process. And that is born out of the queue. So the queue is meant to be that one idea that is shared before the movement, that one idea that is thought about during the movement. It literally is language that the athlete transforms into their focus, into their mental spotlight. And it requires that it is one. It is one thing. Would you ever put two different addresses in a GPS? No, you wouldn't. You'd go nowhere. You'd end up nowhere. You wouldn't end up in either place. Okay. The GPS would say, hey, this is a non-starter. So when you're trying to teach an athlete a complex skill, which many of the skills in ice hockey, I spent a, you know, a, a limited period of my time as a youth playing. I played a lot of street hockey though and rollerblades. And you can't be, it's too fast. It's too fast. And so we've got to build skill development one focus point at a time. And this is where external cues and analogies plug into the cue. Okay. Then the person has to go and do it. Now, coaches love to talk while people perform a movement. But I'll tell you right now, that workshop, that working memory of ours narrows very, very rapidly, closes in very, very rapidly when I am performing movements, let alone movements in the context of decision-making, which is certainly the case in ice hockey. And so oftentimes coaches are broadcasting, or Rick, to use your term, I love that, by the way, monologuing for their own psyche not that of the athlete. At best, they're going to interrupt them, interfere and distract them. And so when, when someone's physically moving, unless they are doing a rhythmical activity like a skip, it might be pop, 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 push, 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 where I'm almost like a metronome, there really is no need to talk while they work. Allow them to learn by doing. And then the, the fifth and final, after they do it, is we debrief it. And I just wanted to stick the Ds. Debrief basically means, Rick, you talked about an earlier feedback. And so for me, I, th there's many books written about different sources of feedback, but all the feedback is trying to get the athlete to the next best focus, the next best thought, the next thing that they need to pay attention to, to continue to learn and progress. And so we outline, outline in the book that the debrief either nets a reiteration of the focus, a refinement of the focus, or a retirement of the focus. And by retirement, it means we are no longer going to use that cue or that focus point, either A, because it didn't work at all or it made them worse, or B, because its shelf life, its potency is no longer there. But I use that debrief through conversation and observation with the athlete to identify whether or not that cue, that focus point, that single address in the GPS is what we need to continue to drive progress. And so that's your DDCDD model. That's your long loop. Once someone knows how to perform movement, 
We just cue it, do it, debrief it. Cue it, do it, debrief it. Cue it, do it, debrief it. CDD, the last three steps, that's your short loop. And that's what you bring forward after someone's familiar with the activity. I need to say from a personal experience, because um, I will graduate from my school in December and I'm, I'm basically writing a diary-based thesis. And basically that means that I'm reflecting on the actions I take on the coach. And um, as I said, and part of that, I was reading a preparational book and there's been so many valuable information. And I decided that I will take this, exactly this loop, that DDC uh, DD loop and break it down. So every day I... I worked on, so the first day I worked on the describe it movement, uh, describe it stage, then demonstrate it, cue it, obviously to do it. I cannot do it. The athletes need to do it. FIA has been explaining in depth. And then I worked on the debrief stage. And what it, what it did for me, it really helped me to understand that how do we can actually put all the information together. And it's a really valuable tool to use in our coaching because see, there are so many information and it really breaks down what you do at which time point and how do you actually help your athlete to walk through let's say in your case through a speed development session or in our case through a skill development session about let's say puck protection or whatever so i think this is just very powerful and i think for me this is uh one of the most valuable information in the book because it's so practical and it's so easy to implement. And now we're speaking about memories again. It's so easy to remember because it's basically building an acronym and it's such so easy to remember and to come back to it and to use it in your coaching. And one thing I've been reading also in your book and when we speak about, let's say, cues like, let's take a blank for example, right? And we want our athletes to plank and we say, keep your spine neutral. Or let's say we do some core exercises and we say, keep the tension in your core. About these cues, you have been mentioning in the book that these cues have been taking you years, years until you realized how to basically external them or how to use language that they're not focusing on something internally in their body. So, how do we actually start to learn to direct our athletes focus from an internal to an external cue, basically on these examples? No, very, very good. So let's, let's provide some definitions. Let's provide a thought experiment. And then let's see if we can answer the question, because frankly, the, the, the vast majority of the book is a guided journey to help coaches a realize why getting focus from internal to external is important, and then B, uh, downloading the mental machinery needed to do it real time effectively, meeting the athlete where they're at with language that is simple, relevant, memorable, but that works. Ultimately, I, I, I haven't put this phrase in the book. I certainly will if we get to a second edition. We're trying to get to the words that work. So the question here is what words work when it comes to better performance and learning of movement skills? And so the, the continuum that you're talking about here, Rick, is internal versus external cues. And people can probably already guess what this is relating to. But so let's, let's anchor this firstly to our coaching communication loop. We're talking strictly about the language that we put in their mind while they move. 
We're not talking about the thriving technique right now. We can, we can talk about where that fits in, but we're specifically talking about the cue it before they do it and what they think about while they move. This is so important because as we just described with the coaching communication loop, we use language for a diversity of purposes. But here we're looking at the specific use case of language meant to improve the movement in the moment. And so it lives on this continuum of internal, external. So internal are any cues that require the athlete to think about the action of a single joint, muscle, limb, or body segment. So earlier when I gave those four cues on sprinting, I don't know if people can remember them, right? Those first two cues that I gave were internal cues. Rapidly extend your hips and rapidly drive your leg. Rapidly extend your hips, that's a joint. Rapidly drive your leg, that's a limb. And what we are doing when we are giving internal cues is we are assuming that the part can give rise to the whole, that the part can give rise to the whole, that I can think about only one part of my technique and that in doing so, that will somehow allow the whole technique to come to life. Now, I think we can all relate to why people came to that conclusion. If let's say in, I don't know, skating, I'm sure there's specific aspects of technique around the way you want to see the leg move when someone skates. And so in that case, I would try to define skating by just what the knee is doing. For example, assuming that if I get that knee in the right position, if that's the source of error, that will allow the entire skating technique to come to life. As an example, we have something very similar in sprinting where someone might just talk about the ankle or the knee or the hip or the trunk to try to get the whole sprinting technique to come to life. But I would ask just a very sensible question. Is the knee the only thing involved in skating? No. Is the knee the only thing involved in sprinting? No. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I possibly in shining a light on the part Am I dissolving? Am I darkening the awareness, the sense of the whole? And if so, is that good? Does it have no impact? Or is it possibly detrimental? Right? So that's kind of this, that's some of the thinking and the philosophy around internal cueing. Now, just as a matter of course, the vast majority of language we see, notably physiotherapists, personal trainers, and strength coaches use tends to be drum roll, right? Internal language. The reason a lot of those industries use internal language is because that's the language, and this is a term Rafe Kelly uses, a good friend of mine, which I love, that's language our industry codes in. We are taught through anatomy, biomechanics, and kinesiology textbooks. And so our language is codified, connected to using a lot of internal language when we cue and teach. I find that that is less true of sport coaches, but in highly technical sports like, uh, let's say athletics, for example, we do see a, uh, an affinity, an emphasis on internal language over external at times. Okay, so that's internal. External now is you are focusing on everything outside of the body. So rather than thinking about extending one's leg when they sprint or skate, it's pushing through or off the ice, pushing through or off the ground. 
Now, if, if anyone listening right now was just to stand up, if they're not already, and I was just to say, hey, I want you to jump as high as you can. To do that, I want you to focus on pushing the ground away as aggressively as possible. Versus, okay, I want you to jump as high as you can. I want you to focus on extending your hips as rapidly as possible. Like just as an experiment applied to yourself, go ahead and try that. And ultimately what people will find is pushing the ground away by the vast majority is going to result in a better experience. It's more intuitive. And if we are measuring you, a better outcome. Okay. And so what an external cue does is it puts the single address in the GPS. It allows the body to organize the whole in terms of a common end, a common goal, or a common interaction with the environment in pursuit of the goal. And so the question that people ask, and they've been doing this now for, for, for decades, is, is it better to give internal cues or external cues when it comes to focus and learning how to move? And the first real study on this was done in 98, or I should say at least the most notable study, kicked off 98 by Dr. Gabrielle Wolf. So what is that? that that's 23 some years later. And we now have a body of evidence. Last time I checked, it's probably approaching easily 300 papers that have looked at sprinting, jumping, agility, lifting, balance, men, women, young, old, elite, not elite, athlete, non-athlete, and again and again and again with easily north of 90% agreement in the findings, an external focus of attention or external cue result in better performance in the moment, but more notably, better learning long-term. Now, when you say this to someone, their jerk reaction is, are you saying I can never give internal language, internal cues? And let me be, I say it in the book emphatically, that internal language has a role to play. It just doesn't have the role that people thought it did. Internal language in my work lives in the description. It lives in the debrief. It is the source of common language we use when we discuss a movement, when we discuss what should happen. However, that is not to say that, that is what they focus on while they move. If I break down technique using internal language, I then have a responsibility to the athlete to give them a singular focus point that they can bring on board while they move such that it helps them move better. And that is an external cue, or as we can talk about possibly the use of a visual analogy. In both cases, I'm giving them one thing to think about. And so when we go back to our sprinting example, push the ground away is one thing to think about. Beat the bite brings the emotional energy to push the ground away. It is one thing to think about. Now, I want to I want to say one final thing and then give someone a thought, give everyone a thought experiment here to, to prove the point. And so have you ever had an athlete say the following to you? I know what to do. I just don't know how to do it. Have you ever had a coach who's unbelievable in describing a skill, but could not perform it to save your life? We have falsely assumed 
that because I can put something into word that I can break down the biomechanics, that that is somehow synonymous with my ability to do it. And that is simply not the case. I'm sure it is true of ice hockey as it is in all the sports I've worked. Some of the best athletes ever whose knowledge is in the movements they can express, if asked to explain how they do it, they could not give you an answer worth any textbook on the sport. Ask the five-year-old how he learned to ride his bike, he could not give you a comprehensive answer, yet here he is with the physical knowledge of riding the bike, the physical knowledge in the pro athlete's ability to express the movement. And so we have mistaken semantic propositional knowledge that I can put into words as somehow being one-to-one synonymous with what people need to think about to actually bring that to life. It is simply not the case. And that is the defining difference between internal language, the language of description, and external language, the language of cueing, the language of doing, the language of how to move. Okay. Final piece here. I want everybody to, to sit up in a chair. You can stand and that's fine. And we're going to do a little bit of a thought experiment. And so I want you to imagine, I'm going to call out different types of cups, different vessels that hold liquid. Okay. And I simply want you to change the shape of your hand as if you were to grab this cup from me. And so let's start with a really simple one. Imagine that you are holding a pint of beer. Okay. What would your hand do? You now imagine you're holding a martini glass. Okay. Imagine it now you're holding the handle of a coffee cup. Imagine now that you are, are holding a, a mug without a handle. I guarantee that was a pretty easy task. Everybody, by simply mentioning something in the environment, changed their body to fit that, to, in this case, get a grip on reality. We organize our movement implicitly without thought or detailed consideration in terms of the task, in terms of the environment we are in. And so when we are driving a car, we are focusing on the road, not our hand on the wheel or our foot on the brake. We trust that if the information in front of me is relevant, appropriate, interesting, and correct, I can self-organize automatically in terms of it. That is what an external cue offers to people. It offers them the information source to organize their movement. It is the address in the GPS. Internal language serves to distract you, to think about your hands on the wheel rather than the road, to think about your foot on the pedal rather than the traffic forthcoming in front of you. If we take the Hippocratic Oath of doing no harm, and I believe this strongly, we have to move towards a more externally analogical minded form of cueing and communication when it comes to what we offer the athlete to think while they move, leaving your internal language far away from the movement in your discussions, your, your debrief and your descriptions. All right. Well, I, I think like my my understanding of this um, kind of continuum of internal versus external has definitely changed now uh, that you've described that a little bit. And, and especially interesting 
how you describe the the kind of the impact that externals can have on the overall movement and everything like that. And I think that's such a, a powerful tool. And, and I can see a little bit of myself flicking back on how I cue my athletes and how I interact with my athletes, focusing so much on the internal. And so getting to that, getting to that uh, comfort level of being external, everything like that is, uh, it's an exciting journey I have in front of me. But we always, um, I, I think we've, we've run out of time for today, but we always ask a final question at the, the end of our episodes. And that's just if you have a final message or a final kind of thought to put into us or our listeners heads um, when it comes to cueing our athletes and, and the information that we give them. Firstly, uh, Rick and Derek, thank you for having me on. It's, it's been a, a great line of, of questioning. And I, I always enjoy being able to share these insights with a broad audience. And so I haven't been on a, uh, a podcast specifically that, that caters to, to ice hockey in the related areas. So I appreciate the opportunity to share some insights. Um, I think when, when I think about a single source of advice, I try to think about what, what's something that could keep giving back over and over again, self-perpetuating, helping the person get better uh, beyond just the initial impact of the advice. And so learning ultimately comes down to feedback, right? I, I, can, I can only learn something if I get feedback that tells me there is something to learn and get better at. And even though we always talk about that in terms of athlete, athlete feedback, the question is for the coach, what is your source of feedback? How do you know you're getting better? What are you calibrating to, to know whether or not your words are working, to whether or not your language is landing and making a difference with the athletes in front of you? And so I want to go right back to the beginning of this podcast and the story that I shared around waking up. Are you coaching the program or are you coaching the person? Are you behind your eyes thinking about the next thing you're going to say or do? Or are you paying attention to how they are paying attention, their eye contact, their body language? Are you precise in giving one cue such that you can watch whether or not it made a difference? Recognizing that if you're paying attention, you'll realize if you give someone three to five cues, it's impossible for you to know which one they focused on. On. And so it's impossible to know how to upgrade your language in pursuit of better. And so paying attention to how they pay attention, how they move, and how one-to-one you are impacting them. If you do that, even if you did not remember or listen to anything that preceded this advice, read my book or any other book related to the topic, By choice rather than chance, you will become a better coach because in there lies the feedback you need to know whether you reinforce what you're doing, refine it, or retire it and pivot. I think that's one of the the more powerful final messages we've gotten on our show. So Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to to talk to you, uh, talk to you about your book and your thoughts and everything like that. So thanks for joining us. And Derek, thank you so much for your time.
So thanks again to Nick Winkleman, author of The Language of Coaching, for taking the time and joining us today. Really fun conversation. Uh, he's, a, he's a guy with a lot of passion, a lot of energy for it, and someone who's just really fun to talk to about this subject because he knows so much and it's it's bigger than just the the language that we use it's it's also how that impacts the attention of the athletes the memory of the athletes and and the performance of the athletes as well so it's it was a really interesting to dive deeper into the concepts and of his book uh, make sure you go check that out thelanguageofcoaching.com but again diving into the conversation the first place i want to start is is just with his storytelling ability right and we we talk about that a lot recently on our podcast about how good coaches are good storytellers. And Nick is someone who can capture the attention of someone and tell a good story with a lot of energy, a lot of information and in such a concise way. And it, it shows in the episode and it shows in the book, but it's such a good tool for coaches to be able to do, to tell that story, to motivate their athletes, not just, um, from a performance standpoint, but also emotionally, because Nick talks about that in the episode where, you know, if we can, if we can connect with the athletes emotionally with our language, then the learning is stronger. It's, it, it, it's more pronounced and everything like that. And that story of, uh, or the example of the cue that of for sprinting, you know, you have a snake behind you who's trying to bite your heels, you got to run away from it, right? That's such a more powerful cue than just, hey, drive your knee forward while you're running, right? And, and it's such a, a good example of that storytelling ability really showing up in coaching. Well, exactly. This is one of the reasons why, first of all, I love listening to Nick Winkleman to any podcast he has been done previously to any videos on YouTube. There's so much stuff about him just because of the reason that he has the ability to charge his language emotionally so much that you as a listener you are forced to keep your attention and he has the ability to deliver the information very um, specified. What I mean by this, he really has the opportunity, uh, he really has the ability when he explains something to you, it makes sense. It does not make sense really to him, but it also makes sense to yourself. So he has the ability to explain something that he understands what other people do not understand yet, but he can put it in words that everyone is capable of understanding. And I think this is also one of the arts of coaching. And I've been thinking about this recently that probably if you work as a youth coach or it doesn't matter which age group you coach, probably a lot of things you do, um, you will say certain things pretty often in your, on your coaching pathway. But then the ability to consistently repeat certain things to athletes who have not done that yet, I think this is a really uh, this is this is a really outstanding skill that you're able to teach and explain things over and over again to people who have not done it yet without getting bored with it and without losing the passion for it. So I think this is an incredible skill. Yeah, for sure. And and I think the, the ideas we talked about today, the, this idea of, you know, the language and, and how much more powerful we can make that as coaches and this idea of cueing, it, it makes it more engaging as a coach. You, you get more freedom in your ideas. You get more um, 
kind of creativity with your language. You can start to think of these stories like the snake biting at your heels and everything like that. And that's one way where you can kind of push the same message over and over and over again, but do it in new and exciting ways, not just for your athletes and your learners, but also for yourself. And I think that's something that is really interesting about the topic, topic of cueing and the topic of language in general, is there's infinite possibilities to it. And you can you have complete control over it and you can you know try different cues out and see if they work and if they don't work you can adjust that cue and then come back to your learner with an adjusted cue and everything like that and it just it's just really fascinating and I I, I want to now jump to attention and how we capture that and how you know it's a, a theme on our show about the the new generation of athletes I think and it's a common theme among coaching and how do we capture attention nowadays in our athletes and you know, Nick said that you only pay attention to the things that stand out or are important or are interesting. And I think that is very crucial to understand as a coach, because in, in, in Nick's book, he shares an example of of the the wandering mind and how that can be a good thing sometimes. But then how as coaches, we need to just understand that, you know, sometimes minds wander. If you've ever read a book and read a paragraph, then your mind wanders a little bit. So we need to kind of utilize this information about how to capture the attention of our athletes and then also how to keep the attention of our athletes and you and making it short and concise and informational, but then also make it engaging, you know, get on their level, use some technology or use some, you know, references to video games, uh, Fortnite or anything like that, but make it fun for the athletes to be engaged with. And I think that was such a important thing to talk about today and in Nick's book. Yeah, especially that point, mind wandering. When I was reading uh, about it, I was feeling like, okay, I can 100% relate to this because my mind is wandering so often during the day. If I spend time or just doing something, I just like, my mind, if I do something, my mind is totally somewhere else. But this is, again, this is not, as you have been saying now, and as Nick has been emphasizing in his book as well, this is not consequently a bad thing. The key skill here as a coach, again, is that you have the ability to capture and keep the attention, as you have been saying. And that's why it's so essential that our language is precise and that we keep the message as simple as possible. So our athletes have the opportunity to understand and really internalize the words of a coach. And um, we have been talking to Nick to this also in the episode today that you cannot remember everything. And as a coach um, doing the sessions that we are the ones who love to speak, but then we do not give the opportunity actually the athlete to or the player to implement even just a little bit of the information we would like to give them. So really, we need, really need to give the athletes the space and also the time that first of all, that they can process things, that they can try things out and, <laughs> and that they have actually the opportunity to memorize things. If we think about these examples, what Nick has been providing for us, those external cues about the sprinting, um, he provided us four examples. And Nick has said during the conversation that probably the majority of our listeners won't remember the first three, or maybe they remember, will remember only one. And 
in my case, he's 100% right because I only remember the phrase which um, when he was speaking about the snake. So when you start sprinting, imagine that there's, snake, uh, that there's a snake behind you who's biting in your ankle. That's the only one I remember. And I think that example summarizes so well why we have to be, I don't, I don't mean careful with our language, but why we have to be really, really specific. Yeah, and, and, and really thoughtful with our language because it, at the same time we can try things out and, and experiment kind of with it. We also have to realize the impact that that can have and, and how kind of valuable attention is, right? And if we, if we draw the athlete's attention to, to something that you know, we may not want it to be on for that particular rep or that particular day or anything like that, then that could, that could be a detriment to the learning of the athlete. So that's, that's something that's really interesting as well. And I really like the analogy of, you know, you said we need to help the athletes internalize it. And the analogy of moving it from the short-term memory to the long-term memory of moving it from the workshop to the warehouse was something that's really interesting. And, you know, I mentioned it already, but the more emotionally laden the, the language, the more likely it is to make that move from the workshop out front in the short term to the long-term storage in the warehouse. And I, I, I like that because it just highlights again the the impact of storytelling, right? And and analogies and just getting to a level that the athletes or the learners understand, right? And and now it's kind of a, a clear picture in my head. It might be oversimplified a bit from uh, the term of like neuroscience and memory and all of that sciencey stuff, but you know it's understandable and 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 it's really clear now. And and I think that's such such an interesting way to look at it but then also the the memory itself how do we actually help our athletes internalize that was an interesting part of the conversation as well because it goes back to that you know if they're focusing on too many things then they're probably not focused at all kind of thing and helping them with the cues and you mentioned the external and versus the internal helping them with the cues to find that one focus so that they can move that one thing from short term into long term and i I think that was uh, another really interesting part of the conversation for me as well. Yeah, and one thing what has been very powerful is that during our conversation for those who have been listening until here and who are still listening is that Nick has repeated himself quite often in our conversation, but he repeated himself on purpose. And I think especially if we speak about learning and if we speak about teaching, it can be a very, very powerful tool to repeat ourselves. So actually our athlete gets the message, hey, this is an essential point. This is what the coach tries to teach me. And this is what I should aim to implement, or this is maybe what I can do better in my next repetition. So I think this is a very powerful point and this is very easy to implement. Um, for this point, you do not need to have a lot of background information, but the only thing you need to do, again, you need to speak with a certain energy level and you need to show the athletes this this point plays an essential role. And then the other point too is that you need to explain to them 100% why this point plays such an essential role and why you repeat this point several times. So I think it's a very easy tool and this is something what does not take a lot of time to implement, you can just do it, start doing it right away. And um, 
other point I would like to touch on with you here right now is the coaching communication loop, um, the des describing, demonstrating, queuing, doing, and debriefing phase. I don't want to go for everything 100% one more time because Nick has been describing it in depth in our conversation today, but this is a, also another very powerful tool because it facilitates the implementation of the book so easy and what it serves basically is it's it's a roadmap and it provides you with guidelines and once you have been doing or well, let's say once you're working on certain things and you have been working on these things not or you're not working on these things the first time then you can shorten the loop and you just have to short loop with um cue it do it and debrief it then you don't need to describe and demonstrate and i think that goes also back to information and not to um that we do not over instruct our athletes because once they have done already something um they know what you want to do probably speaking about our own experience from this season as well that our players have been some of them have been 11 years old and still again they are they are not stupid so sometimes when we introduce new movements this year the first time i described pretty heavily and um, I demonstrated as well. But the next time I just asked them, hey, what's the topic for today? And then I asked them what have been the movements here. They explained these movements to me and then they just started doing it. So I think it's a very powerful tool and it's also so easy to implement. Yeah, and, and you avoid by shortening the loop, you you avoid as well the the loss of interest, you know, the repetition in, in kind of a bad way of just describing it again and, and going through all of the, the technical things again and, and, and you know, an 11-year-old, 12-year-old or 22-year-old or 45-year-old just kind of tunes out at that point, right? So you kind of skip that and go right to the, the important information again and, and then just jump right back into the, the learning. And I think that's a, that's a really crucial point of going from that long loop to that short loop is, is keeping that attention and keeping that that focus and the the last thing that I wanted to touch on today is is just this it's it's kind of a common theme uh, that I've seen recently on our show is is and I think a couple people have mentioned it now but John Wooden's um, quote of you haven't taught until they've learned and and it's something that is so crucial to understand in in any profession right coaching coach education teaching even as like a manager in a business or anything like that, it's, it's so important to not only be able to know the information, but it, it, I mean, it, again, it doesn't matter if you know it, if they, if you can't teach it to them and have them learn it. And I think that's why language is so powerful. And it's something that, you know, I'm really learning how to do right now is, is implement the, the knowledge that I have and, and try to get my learners to learn that information. And we just had a, a coaching clinic the other day, and I was talking about transfer training. And, you know, I, I knew all the, the theory, all the research and everything like that. And at the end of the day, I didn't feel like my, my learners had really learned anything. Uh, and I, I, you know, it was because I didn't use storytelling, I didn't use language effectively, I didn't go into, into an easily understandable way, I didn't put it into um, language or, or uh, information that the learners could pick up and, and, and kind of move from their short term to the long term. So it was really interesting to, to hear about the power that our language has today in that. And I think that's so important because, you know, in that coaching clinic, I was able to get feedback, not just from the learners, but also from the instructors that were monitoring it. But then 
it, it ties into Nick's final message here as well that, you know, where is your source of feedback coming as a coach? Is it coming from the athletes? Is it coming from other coaches? Is it coming from something else? And for, for that coaching clinic, I think it's, I mean, our setup here is quite nice, I think, but we have that ability to uh, immediately go to our learners and say, hey, did you learn this? Why not? And, and break it down and really kind of go into it. And so it's, I think that's, it, it goes back to just having people in your coaching world that you can go to. And I think you can go to your athletes for this as well, but just, just for feedback, you know, how am I doing? Are you learning the things that I'm trying to teach? Are do you think the the athletes are learning this if it's another coach and just asking those questions and getting that feedback and finding sources to to better yourself as a coach is is crucial now i think the point you made overall about from where do you take your feedback what is your resource um it goes back to someone we had on marcus Ackerblom, um when he was mentioning that as a coach the most essential resource we have as coaches have are the athletes and the players and I think this reflects on the final message from Nick because we as coaches can use our athletes as well to get their input and to get their feedback on our performance and to get their feedback on how we actually set up everything. How do we execute? Do they enjoy these things? Or do they think that there are essential things missing that needs to be done better, that needs to be done differently? And the last point I would like to make regarding the conversation we had with Nick today is that um, we spoke a little bit also about internal and external queuing towards the end. Um, probably not that much, but uh, it was part of our conversation as well. The only point I would like to bring up here is that um, internal language has also um, internal language has also a certain importance and. We need internal language, um, but it serves for description purposes. This is the point, and this is the place where we can use internal language. But if we speak about performance enhancement, internal language, it works, yes, but it is not as, a, as effective as if we use external language. And we have been saying this, I think, 10, 15 times now during the conversation and in our reflection, but this also shows then one more time how essential is that you have the ability to charge your language emotionally to actually help your athletes to perform the movements better. I mean, you can use external cues, but if it's not delivered in a powerful way, I think um, they will learn, and definitely they will learn much more than if you use internal cues, but really if you use language which is emotionally charged, then it makes a huge, huge difference, I think. Um, overall, obviously that for me as a coach, I do not have as much experiences and I'm not that much advanced in this field, but 100%, I believe if you develop this kind of ability, it will have a huge impact on your coaching. For sure. And I think there's a, a lot of other things to be, that we could break down here at the end, but I think it's a, a good place to wrap it up for today's episode. So. Thanks again for Nick Winkleman joining us and just being able to, to storytell and, and discuss and, and explain this in such an understandable and, and easy to, to learn way. Um, go again and check out his book, uh, thelanguageofcoaching.com. The link will be down in the show notes as well. 
And also make sure you follow Nick on social media and connect with his work. And don't forget to connect with the show as well at The Coach's Road. But for now, uh, we will see everybody next week. And again, thanks for listening. Bye.